Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, I am Lila Housen-Smith and I am a senior associate in the UK politics and policy team at Global Council. Today we will be discussing the upcoming elections happening on the 6th of May. I'm joined by my colleagues uh, Johnny Luck, who is also in the uh, UK politics and policy team and himself ran in the last general election and um, the practice lead Alex Dawson, who leads our UK politics and policy team and has considerable experience himself um, in the mechanics that sit behind general elections, local elections and referendums during his time working for the Conservative Party. Um, in this podcast, we're gonna discuss the upcoming set of elections and why they matter uh, for businesses, focusing primarily on their implications for the two main parties and their policy directions. So just briefly to recap, there are 143 local council seats up for elections. There are the uh, Welsh Senate elections, the Holyrood elections in Scotland, 25 London Assembly seats, 13 directly elected mayors and 39 police and crime commissioners. Um, kind of beyond all the detail, this is obviously being framed as a kind of important test for both parties post COVID um, and also being taken as a kind of indication of where we're at in terms of the union um, and the kind of next big debates. Um, so Johnny, I wanted to kind of start by asking you, um, what's at stake in this election and how would you compare it to previous sets of local elections and kind of mayoral elections and kind of what's come before? Thanks, Lila. Well, this is a fascinating set of local elections that should be of interest for people beyond the the usual policy wonks. I mean, the first is that this is a huge set of elections. We are talking about rolling over two sets of uh, local elections into one. So we're rolling over 118 English councils, the London Assembly elections, seven regional mayor elections, including the two largest populated ones, West, Mid West Midlands and London. And so the combination is, is very huge. We're getting nearly 5,000 individual seats. And because of the, 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 the recent trend of devolution, or are getting a huge amount of seats that a generation or two ago would not normally be contested, such as the executive mayors or the uh, police and crime commissioners. So from, a, from purely a local democratic point of view, this makes a, a huge difference. Uh, and of course, there's the, the macro level, political level signaling as well. But what's really interesting from a dynamic point of view is that you don't see a lot of the local elections in the news. And that's because, of course, COVID. COVID has made this election a really unique one. Uh, and the low level of public and media attention is partly driven, of course, by uh, the everyone, the voters focus on, on, on COVID restrictions and also on the fact that it's been very difficult for campaigning to happen on the ground. So uh, local campaigning has only been allowed from really March 8th, and it's been really low key. There's been some leafleting, the, the usual large rallies, armies of activists, uh, especially under Labour, who have a strong base of activists, has been uh, rather disrupted during these elections. These elections also have a lack of funding compared to previous cycles, partly because there's been a loss of fundraising opportunities from the uh, 2020 autumn party conference season, which was cancelled and became uh, digital. And of course, national parties 
who normally could maybe focus some of their limited resources by moving people around, moving busing activists around that, those, those kind of initiatives are no longer possible as well. So what I would expect is perhaps a little bit more resources attention on, uh, on, on mayor elections perhaps and less on the local council seats, which will have its own interesting dynamic uh, because different uh, local elections will have different contexts as well. There will also be higher uh, mail-in ballots and how that would impact the vote, how voters would uh, react to that, how many younger people, for example, would re register to vote by mallet for the first time may, may also affect the outcome. And of course, this is the longest, uh, this is the first set of elections since the 2019 general election as well. And so a really important uh, test to see, firstly, whether the Conservative Party is retaining its huge support from the 2019 general election, including the response to COVID. Um, and there is a few other things like the Hartlepool by-election. And just a little tidbit before I pass over to, to, to you guys, is that it is, the Hartlepool by-election is the longest gap between uh, our by-election um, since the Second World War, 21 month gap. Um, and so that means that uh, so it's, it's quite an unusual thing, uh, maybe it's affected by COVID, um, but that would be an interesting test as well on whether the Conservative Party is holding on to their Northern Eastern influence and the Labour Party's ability to retain and to build on their lost seats in the uh, North. Great, thanks. That's a really kind of useful rundown. And you obviously spoke about Hartlepool, but I was just interested to kind of get from you both, which which battles you think are going to be most important and are kind of worth watching. Clearly, um, a lot of our listeners and people um, looking at these elections is not going to be taking um, kind of attention at every single council election. Um, and I'd just be interested, yeah, Alex, starting with you, which, which ones do you think are important and why? Uh, right, well, I think there are... I mean, I think there are a range of different elections which are important here. So clearly in terms of kind of the future direction of the country, the devolved assembly elections are particularly important, um, but in particular, the Scottish parliamentary election, uh, the, the dynamic there is that if there is a majority in the Scottish Parliament um, in favour of pushing for a second referendum, which may be the case either through the SNP uh, on its own or through the SNP and the Greens, or potentially the SNP, the Greens, and Alex Salmond's new party, ALBA, uh, that is going to place pressure onto the UK government um, around what its policy is to do with the union, uh, whether it grants a second referendum, whether it um, sets a precedent and sets a pattern for a wider uh, for a wider kind of friction in the relationship between Westminster and the devolved administrations, I think is highly consequential. Um, I would say actually the sort of the, the second set of probably most important uh, elections that we have going on are probably the mayoral elections within the West Midlands and Teesside. So these are elections that the Conservatives won narrowly four years ago, um, just before the general election. And it was th this point in the general election campaign that uh, Theresa May had a very strong lead over Jeremy Corbyn uh, and the Conservatives just about nicked uh, the mayoralties in the West Mids. Uh, and Teesside. Uh, now they've come up for election again, uh, and you have actually quite an interesting sort of way there of considering just how durable the Conservative Party's appeal is in the so-called Red Wall, uh, and actually sort of whether there is any discernible difference of uh, 
difference in support for the Conservatives in kind of a city metropolitan area like Birmingham in the West Midlands, as against Teesside, which is more towns, suburban, um, and a little bit more kind of, you know, I suppose it's, you could argue that it's actually reflecting of the two phases of Conservative modernization, where, um, you know, the Conservatives are successful sometimes in kind of getting the slightly more better off parts of the country on board, are slightly better at kind of getting the um, sort of the more metropolitan areas on board, uh, and whether actually they're able to both carry uh, in future and a year into COVID after Brexit, post Keir Starmer's election as leader, um, carry both parts of their kind of coalition. Uh, I think the third most important one is the Hartlepool by-election. It's not going to affect the composition of the government, um, but the the fact is, if uh, Keir Starmer loses uh, Hartlepool, which has been a, a Labour constituency for decades now, uh, that's going to be um, pretty problematic for him in terms of his role as leader of the opposition, because governments don't tend to win by-elections uh, of oppositions, uh, in certainly not in midterm, uh, and I think that kind of probably sort of. Um, yeah, I think that would sort of probably demonstrate sort of how Labour's strength is likely to be kind of uh, be changing and where its kind of electoral sort of fortunes and future potentially lies um, post-Brexit and post-Covid. So, so I'd say that those are probably the three most important contests. I wouldn't necessarily um, uh, argue that uh, people should be sort of staying up for days on end to work out what the uh, what the results are in various kind of district and borough councils and county councils. Uh, interesting though those will be, and I'm sure we'll be able to discern some trends out of that. Um, but I think those are the three main things that you should look at. Okay, great. So do you think it'd be a fair characterization to kind of say, heart, keep sort of keeping hold of Hartlepool is most important for Labour and for the Conservatives, it's more important that they keep hold of um, the Teesside and, and the West Midlands, do you think that's? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think those are kind of the respective tests of strength. Uh, and the, you know, the Scotland issue is more about kind of the durability of the, the unionist coalition, yeah. for want of a better word, um, in, in Scotland. And I noticed neither of you mentioned Wales. Do we think that that's got kind of any importance in terms of more what it, what it tells us about kind of both the future of the union and kind of wider sort of success of Labour or the Conservatives? So I think you've got a litmus test in Wales um, where, I mean, Wales is more kind of unified with English politics than Scotland is. But what you're likely to see in Wales is a bump in the Plaid Cymru vote, which is the Welsh Nationalist Party, and a bump in the Conservative vote, which is partly a consequence you'd expect of sort of successful vaccine rollout. Um, uh, I think the problem for... Uh, I think that, yeah, I think that's going to be problematic for Labour, but you'd still expect them to be the largest party. Um, and it's going to be potentially relatively unfair on Mark Drakeford, who is considered to have had a good pandemic, um, for want of a better term, but is going to struggle to um, kind of make the argument for, for, for Wales's place in the union in that respect, because it's demonstrated to some people, particularly on the left of the Labour Party, that Wales is actually capable of uh, running its own affairs in some circumstances um, better, better without England. Uh, and again, this is a kind of a demonstration of how COVID has kind of shaken up the politics of the union because you've had 
lot of these powers instituted under the Public Health Act um, or under various public health legislation, which is a devolved set of responsibilities rather than under the Civil Contingencies Act, which is reserved powers for, for the Westminster government. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, I just wanted to come back to your sort of point on Keir Starmer. Um, kind of, as you said, um, obviously, if, if Labour were to lose Hartlepool, that would be quite a bad result for them. I was just interested in whether there will presumably be a lot of speculation in the media, but do we think that that's more important in terms of um, kind of leading to a, a change in approach or a change in strategy or or a change in leadership? Obviously, Starmer's sort of more broadly been under pressure recently because of um, polling. Um, Johnny, I wondered if you kind of had immediate thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think it depends on how Labour performs in specific areas. So, for example, if, let's say, uh, Labour loses Hartlepool but wins Tees Valley, then you could construct an argument that perhaps um, the Labour overall, uh, there's some progress at the highest level, but maybe they, they, they messed up the selection for that particular candidate. So there's a way um, different wings of the Labour Party might argue in different ways. Um, if, if there's another argument, which is that maybe if Labour is underperforming, perhaps it's because they need to be more radical, that would be some part of, there'll be some people advocating for that. Or there, or might, there might be pressure for Keir to, Sir Keir to announce more policies, which he's been reluctant to do, given we're so far away from the next general election. Um, but I think at the, I, my, my view is that Sir Keir will try his best to, to say it's because of the, the, the vaccine bump. He will try and dampen down expectations. There's, there's a tendency for all parties to dampen down expectations ahead of a local election. I mean, they are expected normally to do better. If we look at how um, the Labour Conservative popular vote was in 2016, Labour led in, up by 31 to 30% 30 in 2016, and they were behind in uh, 2017 uh, by a long margin. They were at 27%, were 38% in 2017 for the Tories. And then the national polls in 2021, April, the Tories are leading on average 43% as opposed to Labour at 35%. So Labour are behind, but they're not as behind in 2017. So it's a bit of an interesting dynamic. I think both parties are trying to dampen down expectations to help protect their, their leader. Alex, I wondered how you thought um, the different kind of set of election results might um, change the kind of direction of policies, if at all. Do you think for the Conservatives, presumably, if, if they um, have a kind of credible or, or a good day um, on, on the 6th of May, they're presumably thinking that there's a lot of support and consensus around their kind of um, broad agenda around levelling up and um, and um, net zero and kind of infrastructure. And presumably for Labour, um, if it goes the other way, um, they're kind of starting to rethink some of their wider strategies. I was just interested in kind of where you think the kind of key indicators, obviously you've got the Queen's speech, which is kind of a major um, announcement on the government's legislation a couple of days after. Um, do you think the local elections will kind of feed into that at all? Um, I think that, you know, Queen's speeches typically end up being worked on a fair bit, actually kind of over the sort of the March, April period. Uh, and build on various manifestos and policy documents that parties and governments have sort of published in the years running up to it, in the months running up to it. So I think it's kind of less, it's going to be less sort of, the, the, the election campaign and the results are going to be less impactful on that um, than you might assume. But what it will do potentially is give the Conservative Party confidence about the approach it's taking 
in terms of um, uh, net zero, in terms of leveling up, arguably if there is a good set of results. Uh, I think there is going to be potentially a problem if the Conservatives lose, do particularly badly in London, um, and if they do particularly badly in the kind of the band of seats and the band of local authorities around London, that kind of demonstrates potential weakness in a part of the country where the Conservatives still actually have a great majority of their seats. Now they'll be looking at where those gains go to, whether it's Labour, the Liberal Democrats, you know, or kind of residents independence parties, and that will slightly kind of um, shape their views on what needs to happen next. Uh, obviously, in terms of policy, um, and actually, I should just go back and say that, you know, the, the Conservative coalition, which we've spoken a little bit about so far on this podcast, is kind of broadly how you balance off kind of, and this is crude, but the very, very prosperous southeast, and the slightly less prosperous, slightly less traditionally conservative inclined parts of the country uh, that, that switched over to the Conservatives over the course of the 2017 and 2019 elections. Um, and you might see Conservatives potentially change their attitudes to certain elements of, you know, things like the war on woke potentially, but also in terms of uh, the government's ability and desire to um, introduce new tax, tax higher earners potentially, depending on how those results go. And I think that's something that we're going to have to sort of pay attention to. And it's going to be slightly slow burn because we've not got any fiscal events coming up in the immediate aftermath of the election, um, but it's something to consider. Uh, and, and obviously one of the big policy impacts is kind of how the Conservatives approach the union. Um, that will be uh, largely driven by the results in Scotland, but potentially sort of also uh, contributed to by the results in Wales. Um, and I think that would, um, and I think that's going to be sort of, yeah, I mean, potentially sort of, uh, impactful in, just, in terms of just how um, abrupt the Conservatives are going to be in terms of using the measures uh, in the Internal Markets Act that was passed earlier this year, which gives the UK government powers to um, spend in Scotland and Wales that it previously didn't have. Uh, and also, I think it might well reshape how they think about devolution, not just in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, but also English regional devolution as well where there have been sort of faltering starts over the last, over the last year or two uh, in trying to um, deliver a more coherent suite of powers, including potentially fundraising powers, uh, to, to local government, alongside a load of local government reorganization, which impacts business because it, effect, it effectively does, does more work to further fragment how the UK operates, which, you know, 30 years ago was more or less a kind of a unitary state in a lot of respects. Um, so I think those are kind of the potential policy changes coming down the line, uh, depending on the results for the Conservatives. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I just want to pick up on one of your points around um, devolution. I mean, Boris Johnson obviously made some quite critical comments about um, kind of the decision making around um, devolution um, and kind of whether questioned whether it was sensible for us to kind of devolve more powers you seem to be suggesting that he'll kind of be considering that once again um surely that's a bit counterintuitive i mean it is counterintuitive but the you know the conservative approach to devolution has been sort of relatively mix and match over the last 10 years 
you've had uh, in education um, local authorities being stripped of power and that power being kind of directly reallocated between schools and uh, and the Department for Education. Uh, in terms of health, you've had some elements of uh, decentralization, some elements where powers have gone to, for example, the Manchester Metro Mayor. Uh, but now we've got a new health act coming through, which is going to give a greater power to the Secretary of State and kind of rearm uh, the sort of the political executive with powers. Uh, you have also had a kind of a series of uh, devolution deals over the last 10 years in England, which have sort of given um, certain, uh, you know, the ability to spend money and the ability to convene to sort of centrally elected sort of figureheads. Uh, but arguably, they've been reluctant to kind of pass down um, local tax raising powers. Uh, and sometimes that's been in order to kind of uh, give conservatives a foothold in, in in areas that they would neither then they wouldn't have had a foothold in previously. So, for example, the the mayor for the west of England covers Bristol, which is a city that the conservatives aren't going to win anytime soon. At the same time, arguably, it's entrenched uh, Labour mayoralties in conservative areas in places such as Trafford and uh, just sort of south of Manchester. So, I mean, I think. So part of this was something that the Conservatives were trying to kind of handle and tackle uh, via um, kind of the, the, the sort of the manifesto policy that was promised for a kind of a, a proper coherent look at devolution. But, um, you know, sort of many roads are paved with good intentions. Uh, and it's not necessarily clear that this one will lead anywhere, even if it's not hell itself. Um, so, yeah. Uh that all makes sense. I just, in terms of the SNP, you sort of briefly mentioned them in regard to kind of pressure around union and devolution. I'd just be interested in kind of both your views on, on at what point, kind of how well do the SNP have to do um, for them to kind of immediately try and push for a referendum? Should we just assume that that will be the course they take as long as they can form um, a government in Scotland? Or, or should we assume that they'll bide their time and kind of we'll see a little bit more of the cautious strategy previously displayed by Sturgeon? Um, so the current polling probably gives the kind of the SNP and the Greens um, a majority of about eight or nine, ten maybe in the Scottish Parliament. Um, uh, Nicola Sturgeon has been fairly clear about the roadmap that she wants to pursue in terms of um, achieving a referendum. I think a message would be sent pretty quickly down to London that that's what she wants. Um, the, the, the problem is it's not really in the Scottish Parliament's power to pursue that uh, and it's not in Boris Johnson's interest to accede to a kind of a quick referendum on Nicola Sturgeon's timetable, which would be a referendum really by 2023. Uh, so I think there's going to be a lot of sound and fury. I would argue it's not necessarily going to represent um, uh, significant changes in policy. It's more for the atmospherics and it's more how it uh, changes the wider relationship between London and Edinburgh uh, in, in terms of kind of the, the politics of devolution. Great so we've sort of talked about where the SNP is likely to go with this kind of how um, the Conservative Party are going to be thinking about their sort of um, policy proposition. Um, obviously, kind of Keir Starmer's come under a bit of criticism around his kind of lack of policy agenda. Johnny, you kind of mentioned that that's 
in part because he doesn't necessarily want to set that out so far from a general election. Um, do you think we will kind of see more clear policy emerging from um, Labour, for both following the general elections and kind of following the sort of um, move towards COVID recovery rather than actually the handling of the pandemic? I think we might gradually see some. I think, but the challenge for Sir Keir is that it's, it's partly a positioning issue because he ran, when he ran for leader, the, the way he painted the picture as, as uh, for his own kind of manifesto was that he was pitching almost like having a manifesto resembling the 2017 election campaign that, uh, that Labour ran under Corbyn, which was a bit more of a moderate package relative to 2019. And he was pledging to be very anti-austerity and, and uh, quite a quite a radical center left leaning towards the left figure, and then obviously since he's been elected, he's been pivoting more towards being uh, a pragmatist, trying to support government where they where they can on, on on COVID policies, and being then under criticism of of not being sufficiently radical enough. And so he's been trying to rebrand a little bit over the last year or so, and that means more of a high level signaling rather than specific policies. Now, he's, he, I think he recognizes, his team recognizes that he needs to put a little bit of meat on some of the bones. He's tried that on a few things on occasional set piece events and that hasn't really impacted yet. I think what, what Sakir might be hoping is that once lockdown eases out, once COVID uh, kind of peters down a little bit down the political agenda, he'll be able to reset a bit more. He'll be able to meet people more in person, kind of build his agenda around that. Um, I think he would still remain reluctant to give too much detail well, uh, away, given how far we are uh, from a general election. But I can say there'll be more pressure to give more, especially say something interesting in the uh, autumn uh, conference season. Right. And, and just finally, obviously, we've heard a little bit about kind of prospects of a reshuffle, both on the um, shadow front bench, but also um, within the um, Conservative cabinet. So I just wanted to get your views on kind of likely timing of that relative to the local elections. Obviously, it kind of represents a, a bit of a sort of pivot point potentially for Labour. Um, kind of how, how quickly do you think we can expect that following local elections and then the Queen's speech? Um, you, having worked on reshuffles in government, um, there's never actually a good time for them. You always think, well, in a few months time, it'll be a little bit clearer and therefore now is a good time to kind of shuffle the deck, give everyone a bit of a refresh. Uh, I think the, you know, for Johnson, you either do it in the week straight after the election, but then that runs up against, um, that runs up against the Queen's speech, as you say. So maybe you look to kind of do it uh, in July uh, and give people a fresh run uh, over the summer to kind of get into their roles and understand their jobs with the kind of the legislative program that he set out in May, um, or you uh, probably kind of wait till September, get the new cabinet in place and give um, uh, give them a run out of conference, which may look a little bit more normal this year than it did last year. Uh, beyond that, you know, you can try doing it in the new year, but that just sets everyone's teeth on edge over, over Christmas and the new year and leads to griefing and anxiety, which is never that useful for government. Um, so I would, I would probably expect either kind of July or September, but obviously the only person who actually knows when the reshuffle is going to be is the Prime Minister. Uh, on the Labour side, you'd expect, I, well, I would expect, I don't know if Johnny kind of agrees or disagrees, but uh, Keir Starmer to kind of reshuffle his top team, 
um, probably around the same time as Boris Johnson, uh, which may well kind of cover up some, provide a bit of cover to some of the problems that he arguably has had uh, and gives him the opportunity to kind of, yeah, kind of um, put a new broom about and make a few changes. Great. Um, and with that, I think that's all we have time for. As always, if you, your business or your investment is exposed to some of the developments that we discussed today, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find our contact details um, and Alex's and Johnny's contact details on the GC website or via the link in the podcast notes. Um, and we will be hosting an event on the Queen's Speech on the 12th of May, where we'll begin to discuss um, some of the legislation put forward and the implications of that um, for various regulatory developments and uh, for business. Um, so thanks, Johnny and Alex, very much for talking to us. And thanks to you for listening. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.